0: Greetings all and welcome to another episode of 100 words or less the podcast. I'm your host Ray Harkins. Thank you very much for joining us on this fine afternoon, morning, evening, late night, whenever you're listening to this. Thanks. Thanks for hanging out. The guest this week is Mike Mowry. He is a very old friend of mine. He works for, actually, I would even technically say runs a management company called Outerloop Management. They have a crap load of bands, bands like We Came As Romans, basically a lot of what's happening on Warp Tour currently. He is the manager for a lot of those bands. He's helping them make decisions. He's helping them kind of usher through their musical careers. And uh, he also played in a hardcore band called Good Clean Fun. And he also put on shows in his living room for years with Steve Aoki, the megastar DJ. Basically, the dude is a renaissance man. He's intelligent, well put together. I respect him greatly. So I was very excited to have him on this show. More on him in a minute. Let's get some business stuff out of the way. Thanks again to The Native Sound, who sponsored the show for the past month. Great record label. This, this is a completely free ad, but that's just because I love them and I love what they're doing. So visit thenativesound.com, and uh, yeah, you'll be able to uh, check out what they have going on over there. So do that. Propertyofzack.com, our media partners, love having them on board and continually supporting the show. The email newsletter, it's in full swing. We've got like at least four or 500 people signed up for this thing, and it's awesome. So thank you very much for showing an interest in that. Basically what I do is every Monday, I'll send you the guest for the upcoming week, I'll give you a little recap on the previous week's show. It's just a way for me to stay in touch with you, a very committed listener, and I appreciate that. It's just another way for us to have dialogue. So go to the website 100wordspodcast.com and on the right side, just below the donate button, hint, hint, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. There is a box where you can type your email address. Super simple. Once a week, boom, you'll get some cool stuff. And I always recommend fun things that I've tripped across, whether it's music, movies, whatever. Just a little recommendation, as it were, because I know a lot of you like and look to the show for recommending you cool stuff. So that's what I'm doing for you. Got to mention some people who have left nice reviews on iTunes. We have Mr. Jitsis (laughs) from Great Britain, he says, I thoroughly enjoy discovering new people, bands, and artists that I wasn't familiar with before. It's awesome. I love that. When, when you listen to each episode, not only does it give me the satisfaction of knowing that you are marching through these shows with me, but the fact that, hey, I don't know this band. I don't know this person in particular, but I'm still going to check it out. I love that. It's so cool. And then Jack Chapman, who basically just says, I really, really recommend this podcast. Thank you. I appreciate that. Again, what's up, United States? Where are you guys? Having a lot of love from, like, the UK. Let's step it up, United States. You know, we're the number one at everything, right? So why not jump onto the iTunes store and leave some reviews? <laughs> Anyways, for those of you that subscribe to the magazine Alternative Press, I'm in it this month. Thank you very much to Scott Heisel, who uh, asked me a few questions in regards to five lessons learned in living this weird music lifestyle business thing that I've been doing for a very long period of time. So he asked me five questions or just give five recommendations, and I did, and thank you to him for that. So check it out. It's on newsstands for the next four weeks or so. And uh, yeah, it's always fun to see your picture in a magazine. It's like, oh, wow, that's cool. I'm also going to be going out, like right now, as this episode is probably streaming into your ear holes, I'm on my way to Riot Fest in Chicago. It's an amazing musical event. I personally have never been. This This will be my first time and uh, I'm excited. It's over three days in downtown Chicago. Basically, every band you've ever heard of, there's like at least 30% of the bands that are playing the festival have been on this show, which is awesome. Um, So yeah, I'm looking forward to hanging out with friends, hanging out with previous guests of the show. I'm going to let you in on something. So I've had this pipe dream for a long time to have Tony Brummel from Victory Records On this podcast, I'm not going to frame the podcast from a perspective of like, this is going to be a hit piece and, you know, let's talk about all the lawsuits and all the bands that have been quote unquote screwed over. Because that is well-traveled territory that has been documented across every single website. Previous employees of Victory Records have spoken out. It's all out there. Me personally, Victory Records was such a huge part of me getting into music that I am so interested in how Tony views the legacy of his label and the kind of character that he is portrayed as. And of course, there's probably some if not a lot of truth within the character that is portrayed to the general public. But I, I truly do believe that peeling away a few layers, he feels like he's probably just a hardcore kid that's saying for a hardcore band called even score. I just, I don't know. I really want to sit down with him and have a honest conversation about, you know, how the label sits in his own head and you know where he's at now. And cause he just doesn't do interviews. So I I'm crossing my fingers that this will come through. I've been emailing with him. He's been responsive. And it's, it's great. So fingers crossed. That's just, I'm just letting you a little secret. If it doesn't happen, I apologize, but I am trying my hardest. So anyways, Mike Mowry, like I said, he is a Renaissance man. He is very successful with the management company that he is a part of. It's, it's awesome because as we will dive into in the interview, uh, a lot of these bands, many of you listeners would listen to them or already previously know them and be like, oh, that band's terrible like musically they don't they don't do anything for me whereas they may not do something for Mike as well I'm just putting words in his mouth he didn't say this to me he really views his role as obviously a mentor and a person that's helping a band you know kind of guide them through this this weird music industry stuff and make hopefully ethical decisions, make decisions that will increase the longevity of bands. And I, I really respect what he is doing, regardless of if I personally like the bands that he's managing, because like, that's irrelevant to me. It's like he's, he's doing the right thing as far as I'm concerned. This gives you a lot of background into uh, you know how managing bands works and all the intricacies of that and uh you know a lot of you do look to this podcast for some sort of music industry advice this is a perfect podcast for that we'll we'll go through it so i'll talk to you after we have our conversation with mike entry point to you, as it were. Correct me if I'm wrong, because I have no idea exactly when we met, but my, if my memory serves me right, the first time that we met, I think, was either one of two places. One, we played a show together in a basement of a rich girl's house in New Jersey uh, with Good, Clean, Fun, and Taken, and that was probably, oh gosh, 2001, 2002, or... We met way back in the day. And I think this is, this probably was just in passing uh, when you were living in Santa Barbara doing shows at the Pickle Patch.
1: Either one, whichever (laughs) one makes for a better story at this point.
0: There's, (laughs) well, neither of them are stories. When certain people, and I'm sure you experienced this yourself, when certain people exist in your life for over like, you know, 10 years and someone were to put you on the spot to be like, oh, hey, where'd you guys meet up? You're like, oh, uh, I don't know. Somewhere, Like if someone was like, when did you meet Chris Logan from Chokehold? I'm sure you would have no idea where you'd actually met him. Right.
1: Yeah. I'd have a general idea, but just like this, it's like we very well probably did meet in Santa Barbara or at least we're in the same room. We can surely say that, you know, it's (laughs) funny because even the good clean fun thing with taken that you bring that up. I'm like, all right, I, I guess we met then. But what I think of is really when we started to, you know, kind of formulate I guess, more of the business relationship and then start, yes. started to reflect on, oh, hey, part of the reason why doing business with each other is cool is we both come from the hardcore world.
0: You you actually hit a point I was going to bring up later, but now is as better time as any. Because, I mean, especially with what you've done over the past, whatever, you know, seven to eight years at Outer Loop Management, where you are working with bands and artists and a lot of different people that come from so many walks of life that don't have a context for, they have a context for a scene, but they don't have a context for, uh, obviously, the, the the cloth that we were made from. Is it interesting for you and kind of revelatory at certain moments to be like, oh, wow, I got to I gotta back this up because we're coming from two completely different worlds as far as our upbringings are concerned?
1: A little bit. You know, in all honesty, sometimes I think it might be advantageous that,
0: mm-hmm.
1: you know, I think that depending on what you're trying to do in the business, which is what I'm in at this point, I think that, you know, certain things from the hardcore world help and certain things from the hardcore world potentially hinder. Mm-hmm. Um, You know, and, and part of that is uh, you run into bands that don't ever have these perceived limits of what their expectations should be, which is great because that's what, you know, my role is and my goal is now with bands is if it's their goal, you know, let's make them as big as possible. And there's no like, Oh, you've sold out or Oh, you've eclipsed this certain threshold that, you know, the world that we came from was a very, you know, real limitation to certain bands mm-hmm. and certain people, myself included. Yeah. Know? I spent a lot of time, you know, dinking around thinking that the business shouldn't be the business. I cherish those moments. There's times that I wish that this wasn't the business. But, you know, now I've moved on and it is the business. And so I've had to, you know, accept that there are certain things that go along with business. I'm just thankful that I get to do it with, you know, music and people that are passionate about what they do as opposed to computer software or something like that
0: that's a very good and interesting point because I think uh what I've what I've watched you kind of go through and accomplish is the you know you evolve where it's like I think a lot of people you know that do come from the you know especially coming from the the quote-unquote Santa Barbara scene where it was so rooted in the context of ebullition records and no barcodes and like you said selling out and that sort of stuff having been raised in that culture and then having to yeah like you said evolve to where it's like You know, you would never bat an eye at this point on a barcode on a record, whereas, you know, 15 years ago, it'd be like, oh, yeah, that's right. Like, we're not supposed to like that. You've made the transition uh, to... Willingly go along with this, as opposed to like, oh, whatever. I mean, like you said, I'm sure there are those there are those moments you kind of really wrestled with it. Can you remember those times where you were find yourself on the fence, where it's like, oh, I don't, I don't know if the music business world is is meant for me.
1: Well, I'll say this: it makes it easier since there are no UPC codes on and on a downloaded file. You know.
0: Yes. True. <laughs> true. Very true.
1: Um, crappy joke aside, everything that I've done to where you find me now has been a gradual transition, so it's not like I had to go from underground punk without barcodes is great to, Oh my God, now everything has to have a barcode on it. You know, there's a such gray transition in each step that I took, you know, from going from there to starting to tour to starting to tour in good, clean fun to tour managing to managing to figuring out, you know, not just, you know, what is a manager's role and, Going from managing individual bands to now trying to grow a company and and manage that. like Each step has required me to take further and further kind of progression or leaps. And so consistently along the way, I like to to remind myself, fucking Kent McClard and many of the people in Santa Barbara, they have a point, you know, and I'm not in touch with Kent. It was hilarious because when Steve Aoki came to town not too long ago, you know, we were hanging out and talking about Kent. And we were like, hey, maybe the joke's on us. Maybe he's the happiest one, you know, <laughs> maybe he's the one surfing, you know, riding his mountain bike. But, it, you know, it really is about what you want out of life. And my life has afforded me to do some pretty amazing things and still affords me to do amazing things, which is why I really enjoy my life, my business is completely intertwined in my life because I think that's the way it has to be, but isn't
0: my life. Like, I definitely think a lot of people, especially within the context of the music industry, not only from the behind the scenes stuff, but obviously playing in bands, it's hard to remove your identity in regards to like, you don't get so wrapped up as like, okay, Mike from Outer Loop Management, like that's how that's how you're known. And that's like, your only, you know, quote, unquote, claim to fame. Um, and then once you strip that away, it's like, well, what is you know, who am I? <laughs> like, there's that proverbial question that's asked, and I, I think a lot of people get lost within that 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 identity crisis.
1: Yeah, I I would agree, and I think you know the people that ultimately are happy, uh, and you know, I guess that's one huge factor in success are people that have figured out how to have a balance in their lives. Um, that's you know, that's what I've noticed, and you know, it is tough. It's like part, I remember when, you know, Facebook first started and I created a personal account and I created for outer loop management account. And it was, Mm -hmm. you know, I really wanted to try to keep those separate. And what you realize is that's a complete pain in the ass. And there is a lot of overlap. There's plenty of times that I wish that somebody in the business didn't know that, you know, I was doing A, B, C, or D with, you know, my family or with whatever, but I think that's kind of like the normalization of what we expect out of Mm -hmm. people nowadays is, you know, I sort of respect there's people in, in our business. There's people that do what I do that have no social media presence or no public social media presence. And I'm kind of like intrigued by that because I realize that part of my social media presence allows people to think that I'm doing really cool shit. And a lot of times I am doing really cool shit, but there's times that I'm not doing cool shit that I, I surely that other people think I'm doing cool shit because I make it look that
0: way. The the digital life that is presented, you know, no one is going to uh, dwell in their own misery and post pictures of themselves doing unfun stuff like there's (laughs) there's totally that context. Well, there are plenty of people
1: that do that, but they just presumably are fizzled out somewhere and don't. (laughs) Well, I think part of that is you have to have you have to have a resilience to you to do what we do you know it isn't easy you're sitting here at the end of the day you know when it's not really the end of the day but it's the end of the office day you know running my hand through my hair because today's been a whirlwind you know and there's been amazing things that happened and there's been some stuff that i never expected to have to deal with that has happened and there's been some stuff that isn't great that's happened and that happens all day every day that's amazing but there are times that you just kind of want to be like cool i showed up at nine I read a few emails, I made a few phone calls, I went to coffee with somebody, and then I went home and made dinner and called it a day. But, you know, there's a, there's a trade-off to everything, and I'm starting to lose the point of exactly what I was no,
0: saying. No, 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 it's fine. <laughs> backing up, you, um, as you've mentioned before, you were, you know, an Army brat, you were raised in, in many different places. Where were you actually born, though?
1: Uh, Kentucky, Fort Campbell, Kentucky, down near the Kentucky-Tennessee border. And I lived there for six months before I think we moved next to either North Carolina or Georgia,
0: one of the okay. military bases what your what'd your father actually do in the military if if you were if you're at liberty to say i mean it's actually
1: interesting, and you know this podcast isn't about my dad and but so much of who my dad is what i've had to figure out is it's made me who i am and and it's made me realize for all of the faults that he has because he's a human there's so many things that are fantastic about him you know the military is such an interesting thing and you know i come from a lineage of military people my mom's father was you know a decorated soldier that was in you know world war ii korea and vietnam my dad's father was a decorated soldier who was in World War II Korea, Vietnam they Jeez. essentially they essentially met because their when they were in college those parents were at the same military base and they were introduced to one another every single my mom had comes from a family of five my dad comes from a family of six every single one of those people, has had some stint either in the military or female side. Some of them have been in the military, but if they weren't, they've married somebody in the military. Mm -hmm. My older sister married somebody in the military. So I'm kind of the first to escape, if you will.
0: That's a huge thing for you to take a step out and not be a part of that. Did that cause a divide within the family?
1: You know what's amazing, and this is where I really, uh, looking back, what I completely appreciate about my dad, is he supported us no matter whether he agreed with our choice or not now in all honesty i think he was on the fence about whether he wanted us to follow in his footsteps i mean he was a guy he asked what he did he was in the infantry he was in vietnam on the ground being shot at all of that stuff eventually he transitioned into becoming an aviator a helicopter pilot okay you know was in the first uh iraq war sort of interesting my my sister sent my brother and i a text yesterday so when my dad was in the first Iraq war, there was a friendly fire incident, um, you know, and there, weren't, there there's not many of those. And they're really frowned upon. You know, that's, mm-hmm. you know, our soldiers shooting our own soldiers. The guy who did it under the command of my dad, he was in charge of what's known as a brigade. It's a pretty big organization. And so ultimately, you know, my dad took the didn't take the blame for doing it. But this guy was under his command and he therefore took responsibility for what happened. Ultimately, it it was a pretty defining time in his career that ended up costing him, you know, a couple of promotions. And I think it sort of soured his his taste. But, you know, one of the things that he's indicated to me, and this is how I feel like I run my organization is, you know, look, I'm at the top. It's it's if somebody else does something, I'm not going to hang them out to dry. I'm going to
0: took the responsibility
1: correct i'm not saying that that's completely gone from the music business but uh it's something that's really important you know to me and so my sister was saying she's a nurse she works at a hospital near a military base woman came in gave birth and her father was well you know they started talking about history blah 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 and turns out this guy knew my dad and the the text that my sister conveyed was, you know, throughout all of that, your dad, you know, exemplified character beyond what that guy had seen anyone else do. And that's something that I really try to mimic in him.
0: It's so funny because especially coming from the context of, of, you know, anti-authoritarian, you know, punk rock or hardcore, whatever you want to call it, there's always that, you know, nature to rebel against everything that an established, architecture of you know the military police whatever you want to call it there's obviously redeeming values and character uh qualities like exactly what you're talking about like you know loyalty and responsibility it's like those things permeate throughout every structure even though the structure may be flawed there's good things to be had out of it
1: yeah i mean you said it perfectly i don't i couldn't even attempt to say it as well as you just said it right. and yeah i mean i rebelled And it was interesting and it was an interesting time. And I don't think that, you know.
0: When did you uh, take a step out to like make that declaration that you weren't, you know, going to enlist in the military?
1: um, Well, it wasn't necessarily like a you have, you know, a choice. It was more like, I mean, I had the opportunity. My dad went to West Point, which is the military academy, and I had the opportunity to go there and I chose not to go there, you know, and uh, I actually was on an ROTC scholarship at college when i first started and it, i was doing that to help pay for it and eventually i just i knew that it wasn't something that i wanted to do it was something that i i don't know if stood against but it wasn't something that you know i didn't want to follow those footsteps at that point and go into the military and so that was a very defining moment in my life where i had to tell my dad hey this it really teaches you about presuming how somebody's going to react because the reaction was actually much better than I had ever hoped for. It was, hey, look, you know, in all honesty, I don't know if the military is the best place for people. You know, it's a great thing. My dad believes that the military protects our country, you know, that America is, uh, you know, not, not, again, this doesn't need to be so much about my dad, but uh, it was eye opening to me. And it's been such an integral part of the foundation of my relationship with him is that he said I'm not always going to agree with what you choose but I'm going to support you.
0: And that's honestly from a generational perspective that's not common. Correct. Like or if it is if that does exist that takes like a you know a father 20 years to come to that point. Of like yeah. okay well whatever I guess like like now your your dad may be coming around like I guess Mike's doing okay you know like
1: <laughs> well definitely ex- I mean you know he's helped me you know uh, with leadership things within my organization you know because again the military you know teaches you leadership I'm here trying to manage you know a staff of ten plus people I mean this is a guy who in a brigade is in charge of however many that is you know a thousand mm-hmm. let's say I mean <laughs> it's I haven't had any formal training in that regard it's sort of been learn as you go i mean that's the ultimate irony of a bunch of us you know punk dudes that ended up where we ended up you don't have the training you ne- you don't necessarily have the the skill set or have the the knowledge base to do what we do you figure it the f out
0: you don't go to school for it you just you you learn by doing and failing then putting it together because you've failed so many times before
1: not sure if that's the best way to do it <laughs>
0: yeah (laughs) no in in hindsight maybe i
1: would have wanted a little bit more formal training or whatever yeah
0: maybe maybe i should have taken some of these classes you know after you became introduced to you know punk and hardcore and that started to kind of you know really seep through your life um did you have a path that you wanted to go on in regards to you know? You obviously said okay, you know, West Point, in the military, isn't my thing. What what, were, what was your sight set on as far as what you felt like you wanted to do?
1: You know, it was so unclear. I mean, the only family members that we had that weren't military people were engineers, and I was good at math and I was good at science, so I decided I'd become an engineer. And you know, two years into engineering school, I'm getting straight A's, but I'm miserable because I couldn't see where. I wanted to be. And part of that was the energy of punk and hardcore and this exploration of a world, you know, a livelihood with meaning and a culture with meaning and, you know, an introduction to all of these radical ideals. And so I kind of peeled away from that and quit going to college, dropped out, I guess, is the term that people use and uh, <laughs> wasn't sure, yes. if, wasn't sure if I was going to go back. I was in Atlanta. I was at Georgia Tech um, and I decided – I took a trip to California for the very first time. Well, very first time as an adult. Uh, Mm -hmm. We we went there once when – through my dad's military career, we ended up in Washington State. There's a base there called Fort Lewis and there's one trip where – you know, it's often rainy up there. And my dad decided that one weekend we'd drive South until we found the sun. And I don't know exactly where we got, but we were in Northern California. And we hadn't found the sun yet. And he had to be back at work within, you know, however many hours it was going to take to drive back. So we drove back right. with, without finding the sun that would have been my one previous trip to California. So I went to California, you know, through my connections with punk and hardcore and the Santa Barbara scene went out there, uh, fell in love with it, obviously, because what's not to fall in love with, with, you know,
0: (laughs) California, with
1: California, when you're, you know, when you've lived in all these other, you know, kind of weird military based places. And I decided I'd move there. And once I, I Vista in particular is much different than the school year, you know, the summer, everybody's kind of goofing off, maybe they're working part time, what have you. And during the year, probably not working part time, you know, people are going to, to school. And when I got there, and I was working, a nine to five and I was watching all these people that are going to class a couple hours a day, if even, and you know, it just seemed like they were having a better life. And I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. I didn't move to California to just, you know, work at Kinkos. Yeah. This right. this this ain't happening. And so figured out how I could transfer in to find a degree, you know, all of my credits to find a degree that I thought fit some of my ideals. But also would get me out of school the quickest because I didn't want to stay in. Excuse me, I didn't want to incur a ton of debt.
0: Sure. I I wanted to get out. You know, get your business done, move on.
1: Yeah. So I got an environmental science degree, and actually thought I was going to become an environmental scientist.
0: Okay, and something that I, I I look back at that time because the only reason I was spending time in Santa Barbara is because I was dating a girl that lived up there that year and a half that I was going, basically every other weekend I was up there. and then once I you know tripped on the pickle patch because she was you know she was staying at like the freshman dorms and then she stayed like honestly right down the street from the pickle patch. I know it's probably difficult to uh, you know encapsulate, but you know, in your own words, like describe the pickle patch because it was such a uh, it's rare to see those things exist now. Um, just because there's obviously either less bands that are concerned about sort of the house show scene, um, or it's just difficult to find spots that that can last for a long time. So, describe the pickle patch to me, Mike.
1: <laughs> I mean, it was a a square living room that was able to fit you know bands and anywhere from you know ten to seventy five people, depending on how big or small the people were. Um, stuff in there. But it was, I mean, it's insane. It was just, it is, it's such a rare thing if you look back on it. Um, but it was, it was a space that we lived upstairs and downstairs was a living room and we gladly moved the furniture out. Thank God. And, you know, California rarely rains and we'd bring the touring bands in no matter how big or how small, whoever showed up would pay the the small door price and all of that money would go to the bands and you know, they'd be on their merry way with anywhere from five to, you know, 500 bucks, usually on the lower side.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you look back at that, that time, obviously fondly, but then I'm sure it is weird for you to have perspective on something that it's like, it's very rare to have a shared space where so many people have so many different memories attached to it. And on top of that, have it also be a music venue
1: yeah i mean yeah i think so i mean i there i i think there's more of them than we're kind of giving credit for i think i i do think that there are a lot of those spaces in that time and there very well may be some in this time that we're just not aware of because i'm surely not in touch uh with with that world so much but yeah i mean i look back on it incredibly fondly
0: that was the that was the inception of your uh of fight records as well because you were doing that did you start doing that when you were in santa barbara or was that did that predate going to santa barbara
1: uh it sort of was very much at the same time i mean the first couple bands that i released or the very first release was an atlanta band because that's where I was based. And then once I decided to move to California, the second release was a Santa Barbara band. And, you know, I I think the idea of it was spawned in Atlanta. I mean, some other friends of mine and I had done a label together, and we put out one compilation. Then we all sort of split our ways, and so it didn't make sense to carry that name over. And so started up Fight Records.
0: I mean, you put out what less than 30 releases right Uh yeah right yeah close close to that
1: but but not quite that
0: yeah and was it was it just a matter of it petered out because you were just like i i don't have the time or attention span to be able to do this and also the finances probably
1: (laughs) a little bit of it you know there's a number of factors and one you know one large factor uh
0: you know i moved to dc
1: um when you was starting good, clean fun or really turning it into like a touring, um, operation. And I was trying to get out of Santa Barbara. I had worn its welcome. I'd finished school and stayed a couple more years to do pickle patch stuff and work and search for our environmental jobs and do a little bit of touring here and there. But, you know, it, it was obvious that Isla Vista in particular was a, a spot that really is for college kids. Um, so I was looking for, you know, a way to move on and ended up in DC. And, you know, in the ever, uh, ever interesting life of a, of a guy trying to spend as little money possible, but do as many things as possible, I stored a ton of my records in, you know, the basement of a recording studio that some friends had just taken over. And at some point while we were on tour, uh, that basement flooded severely. And I ended up losing a ton of stuff, you know, catalog, yada, yada, yada. So that was one part. Another part of it was it in sort of, you know, I was touring all the time towards the end of that. And, you know, I mean, this was the 2000s. So we had, you know, I think we had some cell phones by then. We surely had email, um, but it was a different email than we all have today at the, you know, touch of our fingers. And so it was it was pretty much a combination of things, but it very much felt like it was time to kind of put it to put it down.
0: Uh, for years, you traveled with uh, international noise conspiracy at <clears throat> pretty much the height of their career, doing you know tour managing. You'd obvious you'd obviously known Dennis from Refused and stuff like that. But was it one of those things that you just kind kind of got thrown in there as just a, oh like Mike's a good guy, like like let's travel with him. He, he seems responsible, and then you just kind of started taking on more responsibilities things kept going
1: yeah i mean more or less i mean my buddy jason hamaker uh from Mm -hmm. frotus and was supposed to to do it to do the tour management gig um i mean really the the pitch was drive the band between dc new york and boston for cmj whatever year that was 99 i think um Mm -hmm. and jason was unfortunately dealing with a personal matter and he couldn't travel and I was the you know I knew Dennis as well so uh Jason was like hey maybe Mike can do it he's got a van we had the good clean fun van what I signed up for was to do these three shows which then turned into you know a full US tour and all of a sudden I went from in my mind the friend helping out really the guy driving to something i'd never known before which was a, a tour manager um right. you know i thought that was, was that, like i thought that was the bass really... player or the drummer or, you know right the, the, the guy the one guy in the band that really has no talent um but serves his purpose by uh you know stepping up and handling the logistics
0: right right was so was that a was that a really weird experience for you as it started to um you know unfold and obviously all the you know world tour craziness started to happen with the band where it was like oh wow like you kind of got a front row seat on sort of how a band operates on you know kind of each level as they grow Yeah
1: definitely and it was I mean it was thrilling in in a lot of ways and I really liked the the business side of it of the tour management you know it wasn't anything that I'd truly focused on and and it was interesting but and that's almost like looking back on it that i enjoyed that business part of it it was more so i mean i was bringing over you know five swedes most of whom hadn't done a u.s tour that's actually not fair to say both dennis and sarah had had done u.s tours um (laughs) but hadn't done it as a group and you know the first few tours, everyone was vegan, everyone was straight edge. And we, you know, it was almost like playing tour guide, going to city to city, finding like back then, it was the one good vegan restaurant in any city, finding that, eating at it, going to the show, hanging out, you know, it was, it was, it was awesome. And then that started to expand a little bit to the world, you know, again, sort of each step of the way more and more, business bits came up and things that i was handling and thinking of you know you go from a van to a bus to you know this to that and all of a sudden you're like oh i'm really dealing with so much uh, stuff
0: yeah in all honesty because usually like you were alluding to earlier in regards to there's that you know usually you have the sort of business dude in the band um that usually you know likes that role so did you find yourself identifying with the business stuff um you know, kind of, I wouldn't say immediately, but you, you found yourself enjoying that aspect of it. Yeah. I
1: mean, it was, you know, in hindsight, it was always what I was interested in. You know, it's what I, it was my contribution to music, no matter Mm -hmm. what, you know, I was either putting on the shows, trying to do the zine, trying to do the record label in good, clean fun, handling the booking and the, business component of it and so it was just a very natural transition
0: did you play in a band prior to good clean fun because you never had something kicking around when you were in santa barbara did you no Mm -mm. okay that's that's what i thought it it, it just it's strange where it's like to me looking at you it's like oh yeah your first band was good clean fun even though you had existed in the the quote-unquote scene for quite some time yep yeah (laughs) yep that, that was it as international noise conspiracy started to, you know, slow down and, and the touring commitments that you had started to, you know, kind of dissipate. Um, was there ever any of those transitional moments that you felt like, you know, in in a similar way where obviously like a band starts to slow down and then the members have to collectively figure out what they're doing with their lives. Um, did you ever feel those transitional moments either in between, before you joined up with international noise conspiracy or as stuff started to slow down with them of like a, Holy crap, what am I going to do?
1: Yeah. I mean, it was really when they started to slow down because there was a time when I was doing good, clean fun and tour managing and we were really fitting those schedules around one another more. So I knew what international noise conspiracy was going to do. And that was what was starting to pay me. Um, And then, you know, good, clean fun, which at that point it started to subside a little bit. But I mean, there's a very distinct moment in my mind where, you know, noise conspiracy had, you know, there was there was a break between uh, I can't remember exactly, uh, you know, what was causing that break. But they had kind of taken a little bit of time off and I had to, you know, come home and try to figure out here here I am. What am I going to do with my life? And and it already started to have these you know, tour management is great, but ultimately you are helping individuals and bands, you know, try to achieve their goals. And, you know, I was sacrificing a number of things on my own um, in order to do that. And so I started to have these thoughts of, okay, how can, how can I not be so much involved with this? And so at one point I did, I came, I was in dc and you know uh there was a job for an outdoor educator and uh you know i did this whole outdoor education like apprenticeship and then curriculum which was really fascinating and was a ton of fun um and i gained a lot of great friends through that but ultimately noise conspiracy got signed to american uh, Mm -hmm. and made a record with rick rubin and here i am sitting here like okay this job is cool and all, but here's this band that really has the shot to explode or sign to, you know, this major label. I'm the guy that's been there for five years, hoofing it with them, sleeping on floors, you know, sharing hotel beds, waking up, you know, super early for European festival flights, all of the grind, if you will. And if they're gonna pop and it's gonna be a ride, I wanna be there for the ride. And yeah, I'll (laughs) tour manage it, but like right. I don't want to miss out on the party. Party never materialized.
0: Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the invites were sent out, but then uh, it never happened.
1: <laughs> and for all of them, I'm I'm sure it was you know much harder. They put the emotional investment into the record itself. I did, at least I didn't do that. But you know, and so then it was okay. How do I how do I transition out of this? I'd already been sort of having these misgivings about wanting to continue to tour. I want to be able to. Achieve some goals within my own life. What is my next step from here? And, mm-hmm. you know, that's when I get a phone call from Mike from Darkest Hour uh, who says, Hey, man, we got Ozfest. What do we do?
0: Right. <laughs> which is, which is perfect. I mean, it's pretty perfect.
1: You know, it's funny to look back on that time and, you know, think like, wow, there was underground bands, I guess, had managers. I mean, I, I don't know. I'd have to look back, you know, who managed Pennywise or who managed these punk bands back in the day. But this situation of hardcore guys playing metal that transitioning into melodic metalcore created a lot of careers for people.
0: I know, it's it's really interesting you mentioned that whole management thing because it definitely, I distinctly remember the the feeling of bands in the late, I mean, when, when Taken existed in the late 90s, early 2000s, th- the feeling was that like, oh dude, you don't need a manager. I just remember it's like certain band, you know, a band like Atreyu from here in Southern California when they were working with Tim Smith. And it was one of those things where it was like, it was such a foreign idea and so like even you know moving on a few years from that the idea of like a band like darkest hour needing management kind of being like i guess i guess that makes sense sure i'll do it
1: <laughs> well completely and you know a huge part of it for them was you know hey a manager is this guy who comes in and takes your money and <laughs> totally. and we we trust you and we like you and we know you'll do a good job and if there's any money to be made i guess you know we're okay with you making it. you know joke was on me it was you know was there really money to be made? Is there money to be made, Ray? I'm not so sure right um, that was the intro to management, and so Mike from Darkest Hour, who is you know just one of the greatest people in the entire world, you know, and he's such a social being and a connector, you know, it was like, hey, you're in d c Last I checked, there aren't a bunch of managers in D.C., but our attorney's here. You should talk to him. And so, you know, I was like, yeah, I I mean, I know a little bit about management, but uh, let me go talk to this guy. And so he had just helped a bunch of bands do record deals. So you had bands like Strapping Young Lad. You had Misery Signals. You had the Agony scene. You know, you had – that was kind of really the first – you know reflux they'd done record deals and then all these you know once the deal signed these guys turned around to him and said okay now what and so we had a discussion and i was like okay you know here's somebody that knows way more about these contracts than i know who knows you know who has got contacts that i don't have i got the street smarts i mean literally from touring and we said hey let's you know, let's manage these bands that's really how it started.
0: It's true. That notion of, of, okay, where do we go from here? Because it was, it wasn't common. Like it's, it's common now for bands that have three songs up on a band camp to have a manager. And like, Mm -hmm. you know, and that idea is still, I mean, you know, you, you chuckle and I chuckle at it. It's like, it's funny because they're just like, well, you don't need a manager. It's like, calm, calm down. But then, yeah, when bands execute deals like that, at that weird time of like, Oh, I, we got the deal on our own but then where do we go from here and it's like that's a perfect solution that you guys were presenting where it's like oh yeah we can help you you know after this deal is done just talk to talk to mike and we'll we'll see you through this
1: and so that was you know that was the infancy of it and there was one other guy uh derek who's still with me today who he and and Jeff, Jeff's the attorney. You know, he and Jeff had known each other for sort of the same reason. Derek was helping out a band from the area. He knew Jeff and knew that Jeff had legal legal experience, and they had connected. And so, you know, the three of us decided, all right, hey, let's let's form a company. Um, you know, Jeff had some real business experience, uh, more so than really Derek or I, um, and. That was it.
0: Yeah, and then that's and it takes you to here. You hit on a notion earlier that I want to talk about again was the the balance between obviously life and work when your life is your work and it it all kind of you know your friends are directly related to everything that you do. Um, and knowing that, you know, you, you yourself, you know, have a wife, you're, you know, you're, you're creating a family and all that sort of stuff. And then on that same notion, you, you know, you're being a boss now, or you are obviously, um, you know, supervising people and, you know, no one, when they're, 22 years old is like, dude, I can't wait to be a boss. I can't wait to tell people like what to do. So it's kind of a two part question, but the, the idea of, you know, the balance that you try to create, like, you know, do you have to draw these definitive lines in the sand of like, all right, dude, like, man, man, I have to check out during these, these times, like the weekend is, you know, Saturday is my sanctuary. As long as, you know, a band isn't breaking down, like, please don't call me or whatever. Um, What sort of methods have you used personally to kind of navigate that? Especially now, like I said, that you are, you know, trying to plant the roots, so to speak.
1: Oh, I'm terrible at it. And, you know, the only way that I've been able to do it is to try my hardest to hire people to help me, deal with the the minutiae of you know working with bands which is incredibly important and it's super important to the bands and it's super important to us but uh, I've done a lot of that in my time and and want to have a different relationship with the bands as well as you know my life uh, it's it's hilarious that you asked that because I often find myself working on, The weekends. It's not the same thing. It's not the day to day. It's not, okay, I'm going to call this guy and follow up with things. But I find when I'm taken out of that, able to be most creative. And so, you know, when my mind is free on the weekend, and if I think of an idea, I'm the one emailing it around. Now, there's not the expectation that somebody responds to me, but, you know, we do very much live in this day and age of, if it's on your mind you send it out whether that be a tweet you know <laughs> or right. a, or an email and so i'm actually relatively bad at at that in some ways myself but you know there there has to be a balance people do need to to recharge and refresh and you know i used to just go 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 and i still do that a lot but i have found that I, I have to take time away, you know, from it. And the, the, the tricks I've used is turn my phone off, you know, which I, at least one week a year, I will now gladly go somewhere with my phone off. You can reach the people who work with me and that's not, uh, and I'm confident that the people who work with me can handle any problem that, comes up within a week we're not planning your career in that week we're not you know doing a b c or d that is super important to a band handling the issues that may arise and you know i got a lot of talented people here that can handle issues probably better than i can
0: sure Um, sure and so do do you find that you're um you know how long have you been married now
1: uh geez ray that's a hard no
0: uh four 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 years
1: as as of july yeah
0: Okay, yeah, yeah. So, did you find yourself that w- when you have another person being like, "Yo, knock it off," like not in a nagging sense of the way, but just in a, "Hey, like I'm here to help your mental health." Like, <laughs> do you yeah. find that's helped?
1: I mean, a little bit. I think my wife sees how passionate I am and sees how driven I am, and I'm hoping that's one of the things that made me attractive to her was that I do have a a very strong drive and a very, you know, strong will to to achieve and succeed. I mean, you know, there is that notion and, and this is one thing that she does a good job of reminding me of is just because you're busy doesn't mean that you're being effective. It doesn't mean that you're, you know, accomplishing things just because you're on your phone doesn't, you know, and so try to pick the quality times to be on. Yeah. I mean, again, that's something that I sort of struggle with uh, from time to time, but surely try to implement those things and find ways to carve out time to, you know, to spend time, whether it's with her, whether it's with good friends, whether it's, um, you know, whomever. But on the flip side of that, and this kind of goes back to something that we were talking about earlier, it's like the life that I've created, you know, part of the constant accessibility or need to be accessible, but also having the technology to be accessible allows me to have a lot of freedom, even if, you know, that freedom comes with a small leash attached to it. I can, you know, travel more, presumably somebody could have 30 years ago or 20 years ago, because they're missing valuable phone calls and, you know, methods of communication. I've got the majority of it in the palm of my hand. And whether I'm doing that a hike in, uh, you know, Vancouver or my office in DC, does it really matter?
0: The last thing I want to hit on was you, you accomplished something that I I really, you know, not only look up to myself, but really strive to not be shut off to certain things that are happening, you know, obviously of the moment from a a music scene, so to speak, where it's like, you know, you look at a band like, um, like we came as Romans and who are massively successful, are legitimate human beings, Um, and you know, they're doing something that, you know, whatever, 10 to 15 years ago, you probably wouldn't identify with on a musical level, remove, uh, remove everything else. Um, but I think a lot of people, like they can't get over certain hurdles of, of being from like two, you know, disparate scenes and like something that I've noticed in doing, you know, this podcast for as long as I have, it's like people that it may seem like they're from two different worlds are, are, are kind of similar in, in a certain sense. The, the whole idea of you kind of trying to be, um, you know, not only a manager, but obviously a mentor to where it's like you can take the pieces of these ethics that you've obviously been, you know, raised with and learned from all the stuff that we were talking about earlier. And then like obviously being able to showcase it to other people to be like, Oh yeah, like you can be, you know, a, ethical band like you you can like care about stuff (laughs) um so do you do you notice yourself having to um not having to but deciding to kind of be like oh hey and not like old man nostalgia but like hey like this is how you know i've done it in the past and maybe we should make this this right decision just because it's right rather than it's going to be you know a good financial move or whatever
1: well definitely i mean that's really i think one of the foundations that i try to Employ And I don't know if it's you know, based off of the, the world that I came from or just you – know, I think that good business is done each decision at a time and making the hard but sometimes right decision based on what is good for long-term business as opposed to what's good for you know, immediate financial gain and you know i've watched other people not do that and sometimes they have success as well you know but it's really about what your goals are i'm i'm trying to build something here and i think that's what the hardcore community like really did a good job of of instilling it was you know diy i don't think that Everyone that works with me has to be DIY, obviously, because then they'd all be doing it themselves as opposed to doing it with me. But, you know, I refuse to become jaded and I'm so happy I've transitioned into working with bands that are so far from, you know, the world that, you know, the hardcore and punk world, you know, the music that we were all, you know, so gung ho about because it has allowed me and made it so I can't become jaded and if i think back what i loved about punk and hardcore was it really connected people you know before the internet before whatever you know there was a time in the late 80s when if i had a youth of today's shirt on and you had a youth of today's shirt on we were talking yeah we were going. you know we we might not become best friends that was a conversation starter and what I liked is I, I like people. I genuinely do. And that's why I really love what I do. When I work with a band, I like to connect with those people. You know, the music is, you know, brought us to that meeting point. And so that's what, in that mentorship role, it's really not so much about the music itself. You know, I don't, you don't. I mean, too often telling old war stories about when I was there, we did this versus that, because it really is two different worlds nine times out of 10. What Mm -hmm. I find myself doing is talking about characteristics that I think make up good people and trying to inspire the individuals and the bands as a whole to, as you said, kind of make the right decision. There's times I'm successful and there's times I'm not.
0: Right. Yeah. No, no, for sure. I mean, I I think that's a really, really potent way of looking at something like that. It's like, it's really easy. Even if you are still so connected to the music industry, it's easy, like you said, to become jaded and to be, you know, care about only what you were brought up with or whatever. Or on the flip side, if you are completely disingenuous to yourself and are just like, oh, let me like take care of these bands because they'll make money for me for like two years. And then that's kind of it. Because I, I, you see, you kind of see right through that from a music industry perspective where it's like, oh yeah, clearly the only reason they're working with this band is because, um, you know, they have dollar signs attached to them immediately.
1: I understand the point you're making, but I don't think that that is, I think there's a gray area there because I surely seek opportunities at this point to work with artists that I think can generate money. I run a business. It doesn't mean that that's the only involvement that you want to have. And part of it is my goal is to be in business with good people and whether it's the bands themselves. I mean, there's the whole other layer of all of the, as you say, behind the scenes people. And you find yourself gravitating towards certain ones. It's been interesting. It's been a 10 year ride so far. And I've gone, you know, there was people I thought, we're going to be standing by my side through thick and thin that weren't. There's people that I was alienated from that I've had the pleasure of, you know, proving myself to them or them proving themselves to me and us having to, you know, move past arguments in the past. And it's just, it really is just such a fascinating life.
0: <laughs> it definitely is, is, is interesting, especially to see people that, you know, there's, there's a difference. Between, you know, a, a job and obviously a career. And I think it's like the people that filter in and out of the music industry. It's like, yeah, it's just a job because it looks cool. It's like, oh, yeah, all this stuff looks cool. But then when, you know, the rubber hits the road, it's like, oh, this actually is hard. Like, this takes actual skill and work.
1: Yeah. And that's, you know, I mean, I think that more and more so it, it is. It's, it's hard. It's a challenge. It's probably one of the hardest things I've ever done. And sometimes you do. You wake up in the middle of the night or you're dealing with something hard and you're like, why have I chosen this? Why do I continue to do this? And then you get inspired by, you know, something. I, I make it a point to go see the bands that I work with live and go connect with them and watch them play because whether they're playing, you know, the music I love or not, I am inspired by... By that, a good performance makes me excited. It makes me want to figure out how that particular band can be shared with more people. Um, and so, there's always that balance. And you know, I, at this point, I don't know anything else. But you talk to other people. I mean, jobs are jobs, careers are careers, and there's upsides to you know, there's positive components to them, and there's negative components to them just the same. You just got to figure out what, what you, what positives you really want to exacerbate, and what negatives you're willing to deal with.
0: Well, Mike, I really appreciate you uh, hanging out with me. I, we could go on for another two hours, like we usually do when we talk. But, um, <laughs> I, I think that would probably be prudent to not do that.
1: Yeah, we'll have to have part two in another year or two, please. Uh, <laughs>
0: no, no, <laughs> no. This,
1: this has been awesome. It's been, it's been a real pleasure. I'm flattered that you asked me to be a part of it.
0: So there we go. That was Mike. Like I said in the interview, I just I really respect him. I look up to him. He's one of those people that I look up to and I'm like I define his path through the music industry as successful and varied and a lot of different experiences and it's cool. Like that that's essentially what our lives are, just kind of collecting a bunch of different experiences and hopefully enjoying most of them. So, yes, thank you to Mike for appearing on the show. Tom Richfield, our best buddy and producer of the show he did it this time. He's doing it forever. He's cited the show for the rest of his life. I hope he knows that. Visit the website, 100wordspodcast.com. Visit propertyofzack.com. And the guest next week, Oh, I am super, super excited to bring this one to you. Honestly, terrified of doing this interview and not terrified that this person is intimidating, but terrified because man, he's just, he's a pro. So, his name is dan carlin he hosts a podcast called hardcore history and common sense this dude is so smart when it comes to history he's doing four hour shows on genghis khan like stuff that is so ingrained in our brains from history classes he's able to describe the context in which these these historical figures have been living and just it's so damn good so I heard him talk about punk at some point, and I was like, this guy, he's, I think he's, he's on our level. I think he's part of, part of our club, so to speak. So I asked him, and he was more than excited to talk about music, so it was awesome. So I'm bringing you that conversation next week. Like I said, I'm really excited, and I hope that even if you are not aware of his podcast, you will love to hear about the late 70s, early 80s punk scene from his eyes. Super interesting to talk to a person who, generationally speaking, is from a different era of the style of music. So anyways, all that aside, thank you for hanging out. And until next week, be safe, everybody.